Before the pandemic, I took our healthcare for granted. There might be delays, but most of it was free. I also took pride that there's places in Canada where we undertook world-renowned research or created world-renowned treatments. And our wealthy, well, they did their part, contributing billions of dollars to fund research, education, and major capital projects. But then the pandemic hit. Chinese health authorities are still working to identify the virus behind a pneumonia outbreak in the central city of Wuhan. At least 59 people are believed to have been sickened by the new virus. Tonight, U.S. airports on high alert, screening passengers for symptoms of a deadly new virus. Very concerned. Now that you brought it to my attention. And mortality was no longer the conversation or concern of the stricken or the aging. It became part of all of our vernacular. We started to think about hospital beds as a scarcity access to ventilators is a necessity and our healthcare workers as heroes hospitals across the country in dire mode last week we had to shut down a part of our emergency department because we just didn't have the nursing staff to staff it and that pandemic created a wake of epic proportions a mountain of debt a burned out healthcare system mental health issues and the reality that our population is aging which means increased pressure in our healthcare system at a time when there are major cracks in the foundation. Many feel that the healthcare system is on the brink of collapse. Burnout and exhaustion are at record highs among healthcare workers, and lengthy surgical and clinical backlogs are plaguing the system. What well, can it be fixed? You're listening to the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dr. Alika Lafontaine. He's the newly elected president of the Canadian Medical Association. He is saying that we need to imagine a different future. What is that future? Stick around and you'll find out. Dr. Lafontaine, welcome to Chatter That Matters. Thanks for having me. Dr. Lafontaine, you're the first indigenous president in the CMA's 155 year history earning this title because you spent your career working to transform Canada's healthcare system, and in particular, servicing marginalized communities. So just for my listeners to get a a sense of that responsibility, what does the Canadian Medical Association do? And how do you feel when you were offered the rudder to navigate during these challenging times? So the Canadian Medical Association has been around almost as long as Canada. So it was formed about three years after Confederation. Canadians, I think, notice the CMA during times of crisis or when we need big changes. You know, Health Canada was actually a recommendation that came out of the CMA. You know, Canadian Blood Services started within the CMA. Uh, you know, our national cancer care programs, those those all started within the CMA. So uh, the CMA has been a part of the big changes that mattered in health. And especially in this year where, you know, it feels like when you're a part of the system or when you're reading about the system that everything's falling apart, the, the Canadian Medical Association is once again, you know, stepping onto the stage and, and doing its part to make sure we get through this. So we're going to talk a little bit about your background that got you to where you are today. But I'm just curious because obviously there's great pride in being asked to become the president, but this is probably the most challenging times we've ever faced. So was it with mixed blessings you took this on or was this something that you said, I'm ready? When the nominations opened, I, I actually was not planning on running to be CMA president, to be honest. I had a lot of things that I was involved in that were really meaningful. Uh, one of the things that that I've always really wanted was getting that connection from people, you know, having them come to me with a problem and feeling like when they left me, they, they walked away with uh, a bit more of a solution than they had before. 
you know, that's why I became an anesthesiologist. You know, that's that's what we do. We go into situations and, you know, we help to bring order to the things that sometimes feel like they're spinning out of control. And when the, the nominations opened and I was approached by by a, a good friend who said, you know, if if you could at any time make an impact for, you know, the people you work with and you care about and for patients, I think you should really consider, you know, putting your hat in the ring for the CMA. And the, the CMA presidency, it, it rotates across the country. So each province and territory kind of gets their turn at selecting who the, the president is. And, and during my year, it was Alberta physicians that you know, chose to, to have me lead the CMA at this time. And when you talk about being the first and, you know, the, the state of crisis that we're in right now, I think more than anything, we, we need new perspectives. For anyone who's being pay, paying attention to healthcare, it's clear that we seem to be cycling through the same things over and over again. If we want to get out of this and into a different type of way of providing care and honestly seeing each other differently, because at the end of at the end of everything, the best part of healthcare, the most impactful part of healthcare is that relationship that you have with the person providing you care. Well, you talk about your quote is we have to imagine a different future. How do you move that from political rhetoric? Because that's a, you know, politicians will say that and just it'll fall off their lips and actually start getting people to realize that the status quo is not going to get us to where we need to go. You know, when, when I was young, uh, one of the things that my my parents put together to kind of teach us some some life skills was was putting us in a in a family band. We toured across you know Canada and parts of the United States for about twenty years. At at its peak, we we were doing like large shows. We we're on TV and you know all these things. And and one of the things you learn as a performer is that at the beginning you think you're coming to curate an experience, but what you're really doing is you're providing an emotional journey for people to go through when they come to your shows. Sometimes people have to feel happy. Sometimes they have to feel sad, but it's it's our emotions that really drive us to do different things. We're, we're caught in a moment in time where we have intense emotions that go along with ideas, but th- those ideas don't get any deeper, right? Like all we feel is, you know, complete anger or complete horror or, you know, complete disgust. When in reality, there's nuance to these experiences. In the way that we talk to each other, especially when it comes to healthcare, we reduce everything to kind of a, a flat discussion. I think the way you get out of, you know, the, the political throwaway lines is to actually have people involved in a real conversation. And it, once again, that does sound kind of buzzy and kind of political, but the best conversations I've had in healthcare were when I had someone come forward with an issue, you know, because of that issue, they were frustrated and, you know, I felt that hostility, but I gave them space to be angry. Sometimes people who engage in these conversations, they, they just don't get heard anywhere else. When you're in a position like a physician, you know, you, you have that space where you can provide people a platform to kind of speak up and, and talk about what uh, what they're concerned about. And, and the truth is people can figure stuff out. Like people are smart enough to know that certain things will not provide them better care. To engage in conversations and understand nuances, it's just how do you plug people into that conversation? How do you really get past you know, it's superficial two-dimensional conversation and get to something 3D and more deep. Is it possible that if we do put the patient first, as you say, if we have the generosity to listen and stuff, that there is an opportunity for radical change? The hero narrative is interesting because in the course of the pandemic, we've labeled doctors heroes, nurses heroes, et cetera. But the hero narrative is a double-edged sword because not only are you, you know, the, the center of the story, right? But you're also expected to sacrifice for the system to be maintained. I think hero narratives are part of what we're struggling to find words for. When I have a a person call me a hero in healthcare, and then they know I've been on call for 72 hours or however long, the question that I go back to is, as a human, should we actually be putting each other through those things? 
when we have a patient sit on the floor, as as humans, should we be allowing that sort of state to happen? Allowing a nurse to be called back and mandated to come in, even though they've worked, you know, four or five shifts that have been way heavier than anything they've ever had before. I think getting away from the human narrative back towards our give and take is probably where I think patient-centered care comes out of. I get two kinds of patients, patients who have very clear ideas of what they want and other patients who tend to just say, whatever you want, doc. I'm up here in Northern Alberta, so we have a lot of farming communities, French colonies and, you know, Hutterite communities. You know, these are salt of the earth people who, you know, come in who who fully recognize that they don't have the expertise to get themselves through some of these health problems. That's why they're coming to see you. What I try and do in, in those spaces is, is have people understand what they're trying to get out and what I can actually provide. A lot of people come to the healthcare system with high expectations that it can save you from things that continue to go on in your life that create harm. You know, and some of those things we do by choice. You know, when we make choices on what we ingest, you know, how we treat our bodies day to day, types of situations we expose ourselves to that might create anxiety or stress. You know, those are things that to some degree a patient can control. And then there's other things you can't. Sometimes your income level, where you're born and where you live, bias and discrimination you experience as, you know, someone who experiences racism or sexism or ageism or classism or all these other types of isms. That that's what you bring to the conversation. And you know, that patient-centered to me isn't about the patient being the leader in everything. It's the patient being the one who has to bear the weight of all of your decisions. And how do you help them understand that as they go through this journey, they can make better decisions, they can make less effective decisions. And what can you actually provide to get them back to the point where they don't need the healthcare system anymore? Because that that really is what health is. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. You know, when we talk about healthcare, it's the ability to live in your life and do the things that are important to you in a way that you want. And and if we can provide that care and get people to go back to their lives, I I think we'd be much better off in, in how we design the system around people. My guest today is Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the newly elected and the first ever Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association. Our health system is collapsing around us. Canadian physicians are finding a growing tide of fear, dissatisfaction and anger from the patients that we've dedicated our lives to serve. If you feel hopeless right now, you're not alone. So this sort of empathy that's just radiating from you, I want to go back a little bit to your childhood because I'm, I'm fascinated as I'm doing this series of interviews, how important upbringing is. And sometimes upbringing is in the, the most horrific circumstances and that person becomes an ultimate warrior because they don't want to ever return. And other times it's just parenting that really believe it. So what I understand from you is that as you were growing up, you had a learning disability quite severe. And you actually had, instead of having mentors and, and people that believed you, you had even people within the system that said you would never graduate. And So how did you deal with that ism of being maybe less in tune to what was happening in the classroom? Um, I, I was born and raised in Regina. My mom is from the island of Tonga, which is a Pacific Island kingdom in the South Pacific. She immigrated to California when she was a teenager with my grandfather, and they helped bring over the rest of her family and you know several relatives um, my dad grew up in a farming community just outside of Regina called Lestock. You know, first person on either side of his family to actually go to university and, you know, get a master's. And how they met is a completely different episode. But 
my dad, through a, a series of events, convinced my mom to come up to Saskatchewan. I, I'm sure he never told her what winter was. But did he serenade her? By the way, who's the music? Who had the musicality? The family. Uh, my dad's not much of a singer, but he's he's really great with the guitar. My my mom's more the singer, but they they came up to Regina, built a life there. I have three brothers and I have a sister. Uh, my parents still live in the same place that we grew up in. My brother actually lives across the street. My oldest brother. One of the things that they always stressed was the importance of education. Right, education was kind of that that way that you you step up in life and kind of move on to the next stage. And my, my parents were always very focused on on making sure that we pursued careers that could be helpful to the family. I, health was one of those areas, you know, being a doctor or a nurse. Um, my parents had had experiences where you know their healthcare wasn't exactly what they had hoped. We had extended family who had the same sort of experiences, and so when when I was in elementary school with all of this kind of packed in, I started really struggling with reading. And I had a stutter and I had a very great difficulty pronunciating words. The words wouldn't come out correctly. From what I can remember, they seemed like I was pronouncing them correctly, but I wasn't. The teachers uh, in the school tried a variety of different interventions. You know, I was put in speech therapy for a few months. Um, my parents weren't really informed about what was going on until they they came into administration. They said, you know, what what's going on with our kid? Like, we, we want to know what's what's happening. They were told that despite all of their efforts, I would not go much farther with school. It would be very unlikely that I'd graduate high school. I was not going to university. They said that pretty definitively. You know, as a kid, I mean, you're, you're just experiencing life, right? Like you're running around in recess, you're having fun with your, your siblings. And I remember going out into the vehicle with my mom after we, we had this van and like it, it just crushed her. You know, and I remember her holding me and just saying over and over again, you know, you're not broken, baby, you're not broken. I didn't appreciate what was going on at the time uh, because I was just a kid, but I, I felt what my mom was feeling. And I knew what she was feeling was deep sadness, a broken heart over things that she thought her son was going to go off and do, that she was now sitting there wondering, you know, is this actually going to happen? And my my parents, obviously, you know, they went through different feelings and came to the conclusion that this was not something that they were willing to accept, right? They, they acknowledged that I was having problems. They acknowledged that, you know, I was struggling with my speech, but my, my dad had gotten his, his university degree in education. And you know, I was lucky enough to, to have a dad who was open-minded enough to recognize that there were different ways that people learned. My mom pulled me out of school. She also pulled my younger brother and my younger sister out of school as well. Uh, homeschooling wasn't really a thing. Back then, I think we were one of the very first homeschoolers in in Regina, you know, even getting support for, you know, laminating sheets. That was a huge victory for her. I think the school system and my mom and my dad were, were trying to feel out, you know, what's going on with this. The school system's not working for me, but they still want to support my parents in a way that that makes sense. And, you know, it was it was a multi-year challenge, but it, it was it's it's interesting when you're labeled one way. And then things happen, and then you flip around and you're labeled the opposite way. By by the time that I graduated high school, and I, I graduated early, I was like 14, 15, I was now labeled as gifted. You know, suddenly everyone had super high expectations of me. But you won an Inspire Award even, right? I mean, you're, you aren't just gifted. They were elevating you up as the as the chosen one. It, it all started from a very low point, but the thing that I always remember, and something that I think a lot of us who've gone through these struggles, and... and I, I've learned how universal this experience actually is when you look at, you know, kids, especially in, in the time that I was going to school. Um, 
you never forget what it feels like to be looked at as broken. I think when I talk about empathy and when you you kind of feel that, I mean, I, I'm always very cognizant. And and part of it was that experience. Part of it was the experience in, in the show and connecting with audiences over, over a couple of decades. But I'm always very, very in tune to how people are feeling because I, I know what it's like to feel like like you're unwanted. I, I know what it's like to feel like the people around you just, just can't see anything beyond very low expectations. So talk to me a little bit about this traveling Partridge family. I mean, your family, I'm curious about how that all came about because it's an interesting dynamic as well. Because as you said, I know how I felt I was broken and now I want to make sure I'm starting, even as a young kid, you're thinking about yourself more as a healer than a victim. And I'm curious how much important that singing trip was to do that. Yeah, it definitely was a, a huge formative experience. You know, anything you experience over a couple of decades has to has to help shape you in some way. Uh, I remember our first show. It was the result of uh, a presentation that my dad had given, and he he had uh, been trained in education and often did you know these community events where where he'd share ideas and strategies with with different groups of folks. And you know the uh, the overhead machine, if you remember those, the light bulb went out. And so it couldn't project onto the screen anymore. And uh, he, he's just, he doesn't know what to do. Like he's frantic. And my mom had always sung with us since a young age. You know, Pacific Islanders are very, very musical. Tongans are very musical. And she turned to my dad and said, okay, we'll just get the kids to go up and sing. You know, and and we're just these little kids. Like we're we're age six to, I think my oldest brother was like eight. We, we were all two years apart from each other. And we go up and sing, and obviously everyone thinks the kids are super cute. And my mom always taught us how to harmonize. And uh, they gave my dad a call a few days later, and my dad was really excited because he thought he had another, you know, presentation. But they actually didn't want him; they wanted us to come back. And that was that was the birth of the show. What was the name of the band? I, it was called the Fifth Generation. And I, I think the show, like it, it connected me and our family with with so many individuals from very very different different points in life and different locations in in Canada. And there, there's nothing better for a young teenager's self-worth than, you know, seeing in front of a crowd and having a bunch of girls like scream your name, right? So it, it was it was great from that point of view as well. But yeah, it was it was an amazing experience. This is Chatter That Matters. When we return, we'll dive into how Dr. Lafontaine was once considered a good candidate to be prime minister. Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. I'd like to give a big shout out to RBC's Future Launch, a $500 million decade-long commitment to help prepare 3 million youth for the future of work. And how? Providing young people access to meaningful employment through work experience, skills development opportunities, networking solutions, and mental well-being support and services. Empowering today's youth for the jobs of tomorrow, that matters to RBC. The federal government's absence over generations in recognizing and implementing indigenous rights has resulted in social and economic exclusion, uncertainty, and litigation, when our shared focus should have always been on creating prosperity and opportunity for everyone. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today, Dr. Alika LaFontaine. He's the newly elected president of the Canadian Medical Association and the very first president with an Indigenous background. 
and he's a huge advocate for improving the healthcare and not just for Indigenous communities, but for all of Canada. What we mean by health literacy is making sure that people start to get into the conversation. So over the past couple of years, you know, we all became armchair epidemiologists. In the same way, we have to become health experts if we're going to get our way through this problem. So you go to the University of Saskatchewan, you don't just finish there. CBC names you Canada's next great prime minister. CBC used to have uh, the next great prime minister competition that was kind of this year over year show. And I think it was in its third or fourth year when when I joined. Me and my brother who had been going to law school, I was going to med school at the time. Um, we, we both were watching the show and we're like, oh, we could we could beat those guys. And there has been this idea of having, you know, indigenous peoples actually be a part of government as a, as a third kind of level of government. So you have the parliament and then you have the Senate and then, you know, this, this third kind of body. You know, I was talking to Phil Fontaine, wonderful interview and what a beautiful human being. And he said, so much of this could be maybe not the word resolve, but a big step forward is if we were to be one of the founders of Canada, the French, the English, and the Indigenous. And I just said to me, that is so, first of all, overdue and so, so simple. You know, I, I think the, the prime minister really has the chance to create a framework for how people see Canada, you know, understand our history, understand the ups and downs, and then also understand our, our challenges. You know, one, one of the really wonderful things about being Canadian is, you know, we, we are used to, to struggle you know, growing up in Saskatchewan, I mean, minus 50, minus 40 weather uh, as a reliable part of winter, you know, people don't survive that unless they're used to hardship. But the other part that that's really beautiful about being Canadian is is we're we're so ready to help each other. I, I think we we have so much of this space filled up by, you know, the, these these experiences where, where people are fighting with each other, they're reducing themselves to two-dimensional characters. But, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, I, I live in Grand Prairie. It's the middle of, you know, oil and gas country, you know, obviously very, very conservative. But I know my neighbor would help me shovel out my driveway if I couldn't get out of, out of the garage. I would like Canadians to remember that. Like that, that is who we are. You know, we're, we're about struggle, but we're also about helping each other. And I want to talk now about healthcare. I'm going to do it in two ways. We're going to get into this statement that is very, it's in a precarious situation that you made. I want to talk about it. Before that though, I was fascinated to read about your whole approach when it comes to cognitive bias in terms of the leading cause of patient death. And I just want you to explain that because that to me was, it was almost psychology and the science of healthcare coming together. And I want you to sort of connect those dots. So for, for the average person who goes through the healthcare system, you may assume that our problem is structures or knowledge, but it's actually not. It's people, right? We, we're not making the most effective choice at multiple different levels within the system. I, I became very interested in bias uh, ever since I, I was I was in high school. Um, it was a way for me to wrap my head around why racism exists. You know, it's a, it's a frame that helps you to understand why why good people sometimes do very harmful things. There's lots of really great books, you know, Thinking Fast and Slow is, is one of the really great books that uh, I recommend people people read if they want to learn about bias and kind of how the physiology and, and biology works. The idea around bias being a leading cause of death, we, we know that whenever someone comes to the hospital or they come to a clinic or any type of health encounter, there's about 10% of those visits that lead to harm that wouldn't have happened other than them coming to that place. So uh, we call that iatrogenic harm inside, inside healthcare. 
And the history of that is, is that actually is what led to all these quality improvement changes. You know, the Health Quality Council of Saskatchewan actually came out of an idea that was the result of a group called the Institute for Health Improvement making a challenge to, you know, this, this big uh, medical gathering in the U.S. back in the late 90s. You know, and, and after they made that challenge, suddenly quality improvement just became part of, of everything that, uh, that was done in healthcare and spread across Canada and other parts of the world. When you look at those 10% of experiences and you actually drill down to why people have very bad experiences, you actually find that it's the automatic responses that we're conditioned to believe based on our past experiences or things that we are taught, like in our childhood and, and as we grow up, that layer on top of what people actually show up to us with. I have my own cognitive bias. I mean, I... I can I can see you across in the screen here, but I mean, if, if I saw your hands, I'd be looking to see if you were an easy IV, right? I, I'm already thinking about whether or not you'd be a difficult airway, you know, if I was putting you off to sleep for an anesthetic. I mean, that's, yeah. So I don't think you'd be a difficult IV at all. <laughs> <You know>? Okay. <laughs> yeah. And so there are these things that get wired into us and they're neither good nor bad. It's just human. It's just part of the human experience. You know, it's it's the ways that our minds and our hearts make sense of the world around us. The, the problem happens when we don't pause to reflect on whether or not there's confirmation that what we think is happening is actually happening. When someone comes into an emergency room and the first thing that they get asked is, is whether or not, you know, you've been drinking and you're an indigenous patient, you know, you, you may actually present with symptoms that align with alcoholism. But the challenge is, is that's not all there is. You know, you could have had a heart attack. You could have had a stroke some sort of metabolic abnormality, high blood sugars, higher low sodium. Like there's so many different things that you have to work your way through. And if you narrow your thought too early in medicine in particular, you really do a disservice to the person who sits across from you. You you do start to influence the way that you interact with that person. You know, if what they're saying doesn't align with what you think is going on, um, you kind of push back. Like you introduce some hostility or some sort of challenge. You know, patients start to feel interrogated by the person who's supposed to be providing them care. And the really impactful part of learning about bias is, is just learning that you can make those pauses, you know, like maybe it is what you thought. You know, we, we do know in medicine that our, our gut checks of what people have are actually correct most of the time, you know, a high percentage, you know, 70, 80%. Even though that's true, it's those 20%, 30% of people that have really, really bad outcomes if we're wrong. And so that, that's that's the challenge of medicine. I, I think that's the art of medicine is reminding yourself that you, you may have these experiences that you're bringing, you know, all of this training and education. But at the end of the day, the, the only person that matters in that moment is the person across from you. So you, you have to keep an open mind and sometimes throw out a lot of those knee-jerk reactions. I mean, it's a great lesson in life that goes far beyond medicine, isn't it? I mean, it really is when somebody's in front of you. And to take away the biases. I want to talk a little bit more about this journey. And so a decade ago, the First Nations of Saskatchewan declares an addiction and violence crisis. And you're part of a team tasked to solve the problem. And that's certainly not contained within one part of Canada. I mean, the opiate crisis is severe. People's trying to find ways to escape from the realities of life is certainly not going away. Is there a solution? I think that question of can people change and the hope that you need to have that goes along with that is something that that I learned through my own experiences of hopelessness. The origin of the Indigenous Health Alliance was was actually a, a past chief of Kisiku's First Nation, Ted Cusance. Uh, he was working with my dad and 
they reached out to me and said, you know, can can you help? We're kind of putting together this this team of, of people who to look at this problem and we we want to answer the question of why are indigenous people so sick? I remember those first few conversations, what we were sharing, and we were obviously going into stats and, you know, social determinants of health and, you know, healthcare access and all these other things. And I noticed that the community immediately beside the First Nations who had declared this crisis were actually not doing too bad. Like they, they were doing quite quite a lot better. The access was very similar between the two, but the outcomes were very different. And I asked a question at one of the meetings early on that that really changed the direction of what we were trying to do. And we started talking about why was that community so healthy? We started to realize that there were certain things that we thought were present that weren't present within the healthcare system. You know, the patient safety framework, you know, quality improvement programs, patient-centered care, basic things that you'd expect as as a patient coming to receive care. You know, the the reality that when you see someone that that care influences when you go see someone else. You know, they they just don't repeat everything again and it's almost like you never saw anybody to begin with. Making sure that you had access to to medications and interventions that could deal with life-threatening situations. You know, and then really basic stuff, you know, making sure that people within the community that were providing care had the ability to just diagnose and send off for investigations for for common medical conditions, things like pneumonia or high blood sugars or high blood pressure, you know, the standard things that that every Canadian patient would kind of expect to happen. And then access to, you know, interventions that could take you a different direction. So could you prescribe medication? You know, maybe you need surgery, maybe you need some sort of consultation with with a specialist so you can you could fine tune any of those interventions. And so we we started to realize that whole framework actually didn't exist within the communities at the time. We started to talk about the story about why things were the way that they were. And that story started to gain momentum and three communities became six and then six became 20. And then suddenly we were adding, you know, provincial territorial organizations. We, we brought together, you know, Anishinaabe Aski Nation, Manitoba, Kiwi, and Okamakanak in, in northern Manitoba, northern Ontario, and then the Federation of Sovereign Indigenous Nations uh, across Saskatchewan. And, you know, they, they all came together and it was it was one of the first times uh, that, that I was at least aware of where you'd have you know, First Nations from from very different cultural backgrounds and, and territories coming together to really frame the health issues the same way. You're listening to Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC. My guest today is Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the newly elected and the first ever Indigenous president of the Canadian Medical Association. It used to be that you'd have one nurse for four patients. It's normal to have one nurse covering 12 patients now. You know, it's, it's getting to the point of actually being ridiculous when you go into work and you realize that you are literally the only person providing care for all these very, very sick patients. So in another year, if we don't change our trajectory, things will just continue to get worse. Recently, you said you don't think Canadians know how close to the precipice we are in terms of our healthcare services, dire situation. Skyrocketing rate of burnout, strain on healthcare workers. I mean, I add to that aging population, a mountain of debt, how much it's going to be actually available for healthcare. Taking the similar approach, I guess, that you've done your entire life, which is leading with empathy and the person in front of you across the table. What are your thoughts on what we need to do to create a healthcare system that is accessible and affordable? And at the same time, one where accountability has to be put on the shoulders of several versus just an individual. I think it goes back to understanding the history of Medicare, its origins in the 60s, 
you know, why it was actually created, why it's structured the way that it is. You know, the Saskatchewan government was really struggling with how to provide free care for people who are now sick and no longer productive as like citizens. You know, they, they had a lot of farmers who were coming into this mixed, you know, private public system and they couldn't afford to pay for the private system. As a result, they weren't generating, uh, you know, any economic momentum. They were stuck in a system that wasn't providing them very good care. And the government was stuck with this kind of downward spiral of, you know, citizens are getting sicker. They're not receiving the care they need, which makes them more sick. And then the economy starts to go down. And, and like a lot of things, the birth of Medicare was motivated both by wanting to do right by your fellow, fellow citizen, but also just the realities that if you didn't do something and something very different than what you had originally planned, you would not be able to sustain, you know, life as a society. That's kind of the birth birth of Medicare. You know, we we are talking more and more about, you know, the early strike that happened uh, with doctors and that being one of the reasons why, you know, we we have this this very different model of funding physicians. You know, they're not really a part of the system. They're isolated. Part of that story is understanding that a lot of physicians in Saskatchewan where the strike happened were actually fleeing uh, Europe at the time. You know, they were coming over from NHS and there was this structure where the government was in control and the, the system was just not functioning well. And so they felt very strongly that having the government as kind of the sole decision maker was not a smart way to structure the system. But that's kind of where we start. And then where are we at now? Well, we've had an evolution of the system uh, where it was a partnership between the federal government and, you know, the provinces, you know, as services grew and as we moved beyond just that small set of services that were originally funded, uh, we now have taken on more and more responsibility in people's lives where, you know, there now is an expectation that if you get sick for a variety of conditions outside of what you could get sick for and get treated for back in the 1960s, that, that, the, the system should now service that. We've now had a couple decades of centering the narrative around that being the biggest priority in healthcare. You get the average citizen in Canada actually saying, well, sure, you can provide additional funding for nurses, but what about the sustainability of the system? It's always ironic to hear patients use that narrative as, as a non-system participant because if you're sick, you just you just want care. Like That is actually the most important thing to you. But healthcare is one of those things that if you're not sick, it doesn't tend to be front of mind. And so we, we get swept up in this efficiency narrative that that's the most important thing. You know, if the system's not sustainable, if it, you know, absorbs more than 50% of spending and we, we don't drill down into what that actually means. And I, I personally think the challenges that we have currently in the system is because we've had this efficiency paradigm for 20 years and we've just continued to cut until it, we've cut below the level that we could be sustainable. That promise that we were given, if we cut, we'd eventually cut into sustainability. Um, when you actually look at that statement, it's, it's, it's clearly untrue. If you're cutting within your own budget in order to make sure that you, you have enough to provide for you know food, shelter, all these other things, you eventually cut too much in your food budget where you, you can't stay full anymore. You, know, you could cut so much that you actually start to harm your body. And so if we can if we can break free of that and we can we can revisit what we actually know works uh, in both literature and, and practice, which is if you have high quality relationship based systems where people are seen as people, you have your providers thrive in an environment where they can connect with the people that they provide care for, where they feel like they can actually, you know, perform their role as you know a healer and support. Um, you you actually end up having 
the cost savings that, that we all want. And is the answer then maybe to create this Petri dish, a working model somewhere to have people go? It is possible to put a relationship first healthcare system in it, and it's going to create, there'll be more preventative healthcare, there'll be uh, much more efficiency within the system, there'll be less mistakes made. Is that how it's going to have to start? Like sort of a skunk work? Somewhere where Indigenous philosophy and experience actually provides a lot of support for how I see these things. You know, truth always comes before reconciliation, right? And we have a huge system that we actually have to reconcile, but we have to talk openly about the actual state. You know, the, the pandemic really shifted our expectations of the system and what the system was. Uh, having those times in, in pandemic waves where we completely shut down surgical services, except for uh, emergencies, that, that never happened in the history of Medicare. We're now seeing rolling shortages, emergency rooms close permanently or temporarily. You know, we're seeing family physicians pull back from practice in the community because they, they just can't deal with the stress that that arises from untenable working conditions, you know, you're, you're getting this increased polarization and this look towards privatization, which there's many different types, but the scary kind, I think, is when you spin off core parts of the system as like this outsourcing. Suddenly you're, you're outsourcing, you know, surgical services to a different country or to a different province or other things. I mean, you will never sustain a system if you spin out the core parts of what make that system and give them to someone else. You mentioned the indigenous philosophy. Do you think that our society is going to be more open-minded to the healing practices of civilizations that are thousands of years older than modern medicine, that within that there is an opportunity for people to be healthier, to be more preventative, to treat their bodies different? I mean, are we open to that? Because to me, again, my bias is Big Pharma is on a horse ready to ride in and solve every problem. But when I study societies like the indigenous or others, a lot of it had to do with herbal medicine, meditation. And is that, do you think there's room now we're more open-minded as a society or is it still kind of our biases are towards mother's little helper that comes in in a pillbox? I do think people are more open to other ways of doing things because how we're doing things is not satisfying what they want. It is interesting the the division we often make between, you know, traditional medicine and, you know, Western medicine. The truth is a lot of the drugs that I use day to day as an anesthesiologist, all of them were rooted in actual herbal medicines that were discovered by, you know, indigenous people. You know, I, I was talking to my dad uh, a while back and he was talking about how he used to pick Senecot, uh, which was a plant that grew in Saskatchewan that's used to treat constipation. And uh, he'd give it to the the pharmacist, and and that's what they ended up using it for. That's that's one of the ways that he earned money when when he was a teenager. And what what matters is that what we're doing works, right? It matters less where it comes from. Is how do you sit back and actually evaluate whether or not things are working? So you know, with the healthcare system, we ask whether or not it works based on how much things cost. You know, if you look at a lot of the metrics that that we collect within the system, it's all focused on the amount of work you can do at what price point. And the lower the price point and the higher the volume, you know, the happier the, the system is with the metrics that we're using. But eventually you push people through too fast that they don't actually get that connection that they're looking for, that support that they're looking for. Whether you look at Western or, or traditional medicine, the questions I always come back to is, does it actually solve your problem? You know, does it take you back to your life and give you the opportunity to do the things that you want to do? One of the beautiful things about traditional indigenous medicine is that they center that question. 
You know, it, it's not just about getting rid of your shortness of breath. It's what is that actually blocking you from doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And, and sometimes people's expectations of, you know, cure are very different than what you might think. Shortness of breath, like having it tolerable enough that they can go walk around with their grandchild, uh, that they can move from, you know, their seat in their living room back to their bed. And if we reevaluate where we're at with those sorts of new frames, I, I think people would realize that what we're asking for our system to do is very different than sometimes what we think we're asking it to do. So I always end my show with my three takeaways. The first one that I want to talk about is when your mom hugged you and said, you are not broken. And there's so many people out in this country that feel they're broken, that need that hug. And more importantly, also need that mentorship or care that your parents did in homeschooling. So you went from feeling that you were letting your parents down, you weren't going to become somebody important, somebody to help the family, to uh, to CBC wanting to be the next great prime minister. I mean, it's just fantastic story of just putting some water on that flower and watching it grow. The second one, which I think is so an important lesson for all, is the sense of the biases that immediately put our blinders on and we narrow in and we make judgments. And you use the, the you know, the, the great example of the indigenous person in the hospital. The first question he says is, have you been drinking when there could be so many other things? And I think it's a great lesson in life for all of us to, to open our minds to the possibilities versus impossibilities to really focus on. It. And then the, the last one is just what we were just talking about when you said, What's working and why? What's important? What really matters? As opposed to boiling the ocean, elevating the problem, trying to think that this desired outcome is just impossible to really focus on the present and what is happening and helping someone get to where they really want to go. Fantastic lessons in life. I hope you are going to run for prime minister one day. And I, I think you need, we need somebody that has credible empathy in this country for the people and by the people. For all of this and more, Dr. Lika LaFontaine, I, I am blessed that you uh, you joined me today in Chat of the Matters. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Welcoming back to Chatter That Matters is Dale Sturgis. He's the head of RBC's Indigenous Financial Services. Dale, uh, welcome back. Thanks, Tony. Always good to be back with you. What have you been up to since we last chatted? We've certainly been working very hard um, on a number of different uh, initiatives here at RBC and in terms of working with uh, Indigenous communities. We have a fantastic partnership with the National Centre for Truth and Reconciliation to support a, their very first in-person live event, um, which we're really uh, honoured to be a part of. Also, we've been working with uh, Sunshine Tenasco over at Pow Wow Pitch and her, uh, her big event for Indigenous entrepreneurs comes to uh, an exciting conclusion in the next few weeks or so. So we're very involved in, uh, in, in helping her get to the finish line with uh, announcing a whole new series of winners for her uh, powwow pitch competition. So talk to me a little bit about the powwow pitch. I've been following it because I've had you on the show, but just for the listeners that might not know how important it is, and not only that, the kind of quality of thinking that's coming out of it. Well, you know, in Canada, Indigenous entrepreneurs start businesses at five times the rate of everyone else. There's an incredible historical, traditional practice around uh, entrepreneurialism and Indigenous economies that people often tend to forget. You know, the Indigenous economy is is thriving, and there's tons of opportunity available for Indigenous entrepreneurs with the right level of support. And of course, 
These are entrepreneurs, many of whom that continue to face barriers, particularly around access to capital and and other resources that um, many others take for granted in Canada. And so anything that we can do at RBC to help support entrepreneurs like through Powwow Pitch is uh, is very important to us. So Powwow Pitch is this incredible event that uh, is now really international. Sunshine has, has taken it internationally, um, but started here in Canada really as kind of a Dragon's Den style competition for Indigenous entrepreneurs. And my gosh, the the level of innovation and creativity that come from some of these entrepreneurs is just fantastic. So as part of National uh, Aboriginal Day, my guest is Dr. Alika Lafontaine, the first Indigenous leader and also the youngest president of the Canadian Medical Association. Did that create a buzz across the Indigenous communities? Anytime we see Indigenous representation and inclusion in, uh, you know, in all aspects, in, in full and meaningful ways across Canadian society is, is an important step forward, not just from uh, the point of view of reconciliation, but just in terms of basic issues around equality and, and, and justice and inclusion these are significant moments. I think a lot of people forget that there are a number of significant barriers that continue to exist for Indigenous people around access to education and employment. And so those we see in, in positions of success and influence um, have had to work 10 times harder uh, than many other folks to get to where they are today. So it's a huge cause for celebration and much respect for for those individuals that um, are finally being able to be recognized, I think, in the appropriate ways for their contributions to their professions in, in Canada. What I was so impressed about is how calm he is in his belief that healthcare, we can shift it from crisis to opportunity. And his belief is, for example, the 13 provinces and territories working better together having more people like him who can draw on their roots where they've, they've experienced this lack of access. They've experienced the fact that they can't uh, find a doctor or get the kind of medical attention or not even have access to an emergency room. And by having that lens and having that empathy, he thinks he's in a much better position to convince others that this isn't only something we need to do. This is something that's the right thing to do. There is a lot that uh, many people in Canada can do in terms of making sure that Indigenous uh, voices, Indigenous perspectives, Indigenous experience is included in more meaningful ways. And, and uh, there's lots of ways we can think about how that can happen. Um, certainly, Indigenous uh, healthcare professionals, incredibly important in terms of providing culturally relevant care to Indigenous communities and patients, but also just generally being included as part of the medical profession and the healthcare profession in Canada is an important step forward because no profession, no um, no community can really advance and evolve and be stronger without the inclusion of diverse perspectives. You know, I always think of this analogy of two individuals looking, you know, at a at a building. One's on the south side of the building, the other's on the north side of the building. The north side is painted blue, the south side is painted red, and they're arguing about the color of the house. You know, the person that sees the red house can only see the red house and insists the house is red, and the person that can only see the blue part of the house insists the entire house is blue. And, you know, without having other perspectives at other points around this building, no one really understands the full perspective. And so this is really what, you know, meaningful inclusion looks like, is making sure the perspectives and the experience of other folks is brought in 
uh, to the picture so that we all can benefit from understanding better what the reality of our situation is. And that's, you know, that's what's happening when we talk about Indigenous healthcare providers, for example, when we talk about Indigenous bankers, when we talk about Indigenous leaders, that's what we're trying to ensure is that there are, there is Indigenous knowledge and ways of knowing that are that are brought to bear on decisions, on outcomes uh, that have never, you know, happened in the past. I appreciate you joining me in Chatter That Matters. All right, Tony, anytime. Thank you. Chatter That Matters has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network. It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.